President. What is your name? Emiliano Zapata. Out of the earth that shook with a cry, conquistadores, comes Zapata, the Robin Hood of Mexico. The man with a circle around his name, a machete in his hand, fire in his blood, taking by storm and holding by fury. And where he rode, they conquered. When he loved, he tamed the proud Josefa. You realize that I can take you away with me by force? By force? I would not prevent you. I would go with you because I couldn't prevent you. But sooner or later you will fall asleep. And then? It's Marlon Brando as Zapata, the tiger who blasted the continent. Gene Peters as the beauty whose heart he captured. Anthony Quinn. And a cast of thousands. What are you worried about? We'll find a good piece of land someplace and we'll settle down. And you'll raise horses. And you'll raise melons. And you'll raise meat. And I'll buy you two new dresses, both white. I'll go to sleep. Did you take the land away from these people? I took what I wanted. Anita. I took their wives, too. What kind of an animal are you? Puerta's forces are coming through the pass, Emiliano. Emiliano, I give you my word. I will stop the troops. I hope so, but if you can't, I will. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah. Uh, so much brown face. Yeah. <laughs> I loved all the accents too in the movie. It was great because you had um, Marlon Brando doing basically the Godfather, but with a slight Mexican accent. <laughs> and then, and then half the half the people were like, were like, uh, nobody asked me nothing. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you think? I'm doing a pretty good job as being a Mexican. I got a bronze in everything. <laughs> oh, I'm heading over to Tijuana over here. What do you What do you want from me? <laughs> oh God, I can't believe all. Like I was looking at like uh, Daryl, like all like this movies that like what he's produced and like all about Eve. I'm like, you did that masterpiece. Yeah, I don't know if Viva uh, Daryl Zanuck is a very <laughs> is something that we want, or or Viva Elia Kazan for that matter. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of sold out a lot of people, which is something that I definitely want to talk about tonight. But welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. We are going to be talking about Viva Zapata, probably the most um, uh, like inaccurate biopic or inaccurate biographical drama. Because I've been listening to the Revolutions uh, series. I listened to twenty-seven episodes about the Mexican Revolution, and. Mm -hmm. It's not even uh, like the the Robin Hood of Mexico isn't even uh, Zapata. That's that's Pancho Villa. But I, I think that um, this is kind of the story of Pancho Villa. A lot of it kind of condensed into a, a story of like taking several uh, figures from the Mexican Revolution and kind of tying them together. But because of the American uh, response and because this movie is coming out the same year that the Korean War is happening, I don't think that they really wanted to, uh, you know, make make. Pancho Villa figure besides making him yabba dabba do because uh, <laughs> he's literally played by the guy that does Fred Flintstone's voice. Yes. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Zapata dabba do. But I am Forrest Miller. This is Movie Night Extravaganza. I am joined by Jay Andrew podcasting in Whiteface World. Yeah. Yeah, no, we just want to make sure it's clear for all of our audio listeners that uh, I am in fact in Whiteface. <laughs> Joined by Karthik, Alien Encounters on Substack, and Revolutionary Tracks on Left Flank Vets. You guys are still doing that, right? Yeah. Uh, it, we're actually going to have like a little bit of a, a sort of revival. Uh, we might even do it more frequently, uh, but we're, it's in the works. Uh, but now I can more confidently introduce myself as like Revolutionary Tracks with Left Flank Vets. Word. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed when you guys did some of that. I mean, I know you had... Um, you had Napoleon the Legend on, right? And you had uh it feels like so long ago. But I remember I remember there were multiple people that I watched the, the thing and I was like, yeah, hell yeah. We had um, like two two artists like this uh last two weeks. Uh there was one guy called Passport Rav that we had, and then before that we had we had a pretty cool um self-described maroon um artist uh, who's from Louisiana but uh, now lives in Oklahoma. And uh, he, his name is Marcel P. P. Black, and uh, he's a pretty cool, great guest. Um, did a verse that was uh, crazy uh, about like one of his ancestors who was like a, an escaped slave. So it was like pretty, pretty wild that he kind of like spit that right on the spot and was. It was oh cool. damn! Wait, he he already wrote it and he spit it on the spot. Yeah, it's an old. Kinda... Yeah, it's an old yeah. song that of his, but like he, yeah, he spit it on the spot. Oh, that's 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 crazy. And of course, we're also joined by Christina Oaks. I'm Christina on on Twitch, and uh, you know, filling in as our as as Conan's understudy while he does a uh, live live band playing and touring with his yes. secret friends. Not the, you know, not a secret friend zone. Not, 
<laughs> the secret friend zone. He's in the secret friend zone right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I've I've dug into this uh, the Revolution series, and I listened to like twenty seven episodes this week of uh, stuff on the Mexican Revolution. Honestly, one of the most batshit insane um, like ten year revolutions of all time. Pretty much everybody involved in it that was a revolutionary leader ended up dying from somebody else. And, uh, like, even they, like, they, like, ended the revolution and, uh, Obergon, who was, like, the last person left standing pretty much, then, like, two years later got, like, murdered or a few years later. I don't know. Just randomly yeah. someone ran up to him and, and just, like, hit, f- fucking shot him in the face five times, I think. And, and then what's even crazier, Jake Flores, <laughs> you know, friend of the show, Jake Flores, his, um, uh, great uncle was a journalist and, and like a uh, writer, like, like basically wrote socialist propaganda. Oh, was that, uh, was that a uh, John, John Reed? Uh, no, 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 no. It, it's um the guy's name is Flores too. Um, oh. he, he's actually a Mexican folk hero as well. Uh, I, I don't remember his first name, but, but uh, uh, if you, if you listen to pod damn America, there's a great crossover episode he did with some other podcast, which I can't think of. Oh, uh, where they covered the Mexican Revolution, and, and uh, that's that's a great episode too to to check out. So, you know, there's, if, a, if there's a famous there's a famous journalist that was an early uh, communist in in the United States um, named John Reed, and he went and John was, Reed was uh, friends with with uh, this Flores fellow, but I don't. I, I, I it's been a little bit since I've listened to it, so I don't remember the exact story. But back in their back in their stand up days. Yes. <laughs> No, so so John Reed um, went around with Pancho Villa. He kind of was was part of his uh, little posse. Pancho Villa also had a, a full um, when he was friend like when he was friendly with the United States. He had a full uh, Hollywood team going around with him, and it was like one of the early newsreel things. Um, apparently, it's a, a thing that's been lost, but Pancho Villa had uh, news cameras going around with him that they turned into reels before they had movies play. But they also had John Reed, who ended up um, going to a few years later going to. Uh, um, Russia during the uh, the ten days that shook the world. He's the one that wrote that book. So yeah. uh, it's a slightly ignorant question, but like, who was the guy who played Pancho? Not just who, who the actor, but like, I'm, I'm forgetting what role Pancho Villa even had in the. I, I I feel like he was mostly mentioned off camera, like off he was he was mentioned, but I don't know. I I couldn't recall if there was an actor. I think he only had like one it. scene, right? Like where where he comes in and he's like, "Get rid of that painting, yeah, so that scene is based off of something that actually happened. Um, when uh, Pancho Villa had been fighting kind of in the north, uh, the, the, Zavatistas, the Zavatistas were fighting in the south, and they kind of had this alliance where they didn't actually meet until that moment where uh, they met in Mexico City. And they had like this conference, and, and they talked about stuff. And that was, I think, what they were kind of playing off in this. Um, but he never said, hey... Uh, I'm gonna go back to my ranch, Emiliano Zapata. Do you want to be president of Mexico? That's uh, not that a real dude. Okay, okay, but okay. Who was supposed to be Pancho Villa in in yeah. this? And then it's totally Fred Flintstone energy too that he had. Like, like <laughs> I know. How in the <laughs> hell did the movie get positive reviews? <laughs> they, they did the like, Michael Mann. This is Man. Don McCain's favorite film. Well, of course. Oh, wow. it's John <laughs> they did John the McCain. Michael Mann and Heat thing before. Uh, you know, he did it. With, it was like you know was principal John, protagonist John meeting requirements for favorite films <laughs> involves black you know black and brown face. <laughs> yeah, they only meet for one scene. It's kind of like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, but it's Mal Marlon Brando doing that with I had the Fred Flintstone actor. <laughs> Marlon Brando and Fred Flintstone. They also um 
We also have the scene that like literally is just like the Godfather with Fredo. Look how um, they got the good where, boy. Where he, where he fucking kills the guy that, you know what I mean? That's been like his brother pretty much the whole thing. And he's right, like, right. I don't know. I was just thinking like, Fredito, you, you were my brother. <laughs> you know, I, I will say this. This is not the worst Anthony Quinn movie I've seen this year. Mm. What else did you see? Um, there is this horrible do not watch romantic comedy starring Sylvester Stallone. And um, I, I forget the woman who's, who's playing opposite of him. Um, but Sylvester Stallone is this hitman, is this basically this bodyguard to a mobster played by Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn dies in the movie, like 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 in real life, like he's dead. He can't oh. finish the movie. So they they, they make this romantic yeah, well, comedy. Now I'm looking this up now. It's called um, Protecting Angelo, and it like do not watch. It is boring. Like like it, it shouldn't be boring. But but here it is. It's, it's a boring romantic comedy where occasionally there might be an okay moment. Um, but you know, it's like, oh, ha ha. He's trying to hide a dead body from her, but it smells. <laughs> so I, I'll start with this, uh, with this clip. This is, um, this is Anthony Quinn talking about, he actually was born during the Mexican revolution, which yeah. is kind of fascinating. I think he's like the only Mexican in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is him talking about, um, his, he was like eight months old or something. His parents but brought him probably, over. They probably still put brown face on him to make him look darker. <laughs> oh, definitely. But so his parents brought him over the, uh, brought him over the border and snuck him over and like, um, and there's, I guess there was a whole controversy. I, I don't even know if he had resolved it by this point, whether he was here legally or not. Um, and so this, this is actually kind of fascinating. Um, his, his, his father was Irish. His mother was Mexican and mm-hmm. uh, they met fighting in the Mexican revolution, essentially. Hmm. Love. And uh, of course I was born in one of the roughest periods uh, in the history of uh, the world, the Mexican revolution. So it wasn't an easy beginning, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I, as a matter of fact, I'm very happy that I have survived that period. Yeah, you've survived it very well, too. Um, you were a legal immigrant into America, weren't you? Well, there was a question about that, whether I was legal. <laughs> At that time, they used to pass out uh, pink slips to the uh, so-called wetbacks. And depending upon if they uh, uh, found jobs across the border, then they were allowed to stay. And it also happened to overlap the uh, First World War. Mm. Uh, I've already given my age away, haven't I? Anyway. Uh, you are a very small boy. Yes, yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, eight months old when we crossed the border. But uh, we went to live in Texas. It wasn't an easy place to live in. And uh, But I, 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 don't, I, I don't worry the fact, let mm. us say. I'm just very happy that I lived through it. I did read somewhere, though, that... Um, We'll talk, we'll talk about your mother in a moment because I know she was about the most oh, single important Ma, thing. Talk yeah, about come her. on, just for a little <laughs> bit. But in fact, you were hidden under various Saxon things, and and I did read somewhere, did I not, that um, that gave you your lifelong claustrophobic feelings. Well, in order to escape from the revolution in Mexico, mm. uh, my mother, poor mother, had to hide me in a coal wagon, and I guess I was suffocating to death. And since then, I. Even being in a in an uh, elevator scares me. Yes, I have that uh, terrible claustrophobic feeling. Yes. Mm. Well, now your father, when your mother was looking for him after you were born, was unknown to you in France, fighting with the American. I didn't know we were going here so soon, but yes, that was actually very uh, pivotal to American history. Um, that that was the. Uh, Right, right around then, um, uh, America did not have closed borders except for people from Asia. So, you know, sorry, Carthic, you couldn't come then. Um, 
but uh, uh, you know, it was a, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and they had Chinese inspectors, and there was a Chinese inspector in El Paso named John W. Berkshire who was seeing all these immigrants, you know, fleeing the the violence, and um, inspired him to create the Border Patrol. Yeah, and um, another big thing is during the Mexican Revolution. Um, there would frequently kind of be uh, patrols of people from the United States. I mean, you know, the, the big one, and I think this is why this movie ends up the way it is, so this kind of all ties together, is that Pancho Villa declared war on the United States and only had like 500 soldiers or something, or I don't know, like 1,200 soldiers maybe. Like he had a very small force of soldiers by this point. He had been defeated by Obregón, who's the guy who ended up pretty much winning the Mexican Revolution, um, along with the Zapatistas, who besides, you know, Emiliano Zapata, um, so he rode up into a, a base in the United States. One of his, he got like big fucking wily coyote energy. Um, mm. at, like after his, his, you know, defeat. wrong cartoon character, supposed to be Fred Flintstone. <laughs> but he had, he had big wily coyote uh, energy and was trying to do all these things where he would, you know, kind of jumble the political board um, so that he could maybe like get back on top because he had pretty much lost. He was, he was on the run and he had lost the Mexican Revolution essentially. And, um, one of the things he did is he decided to declare war in the United States, rode into a, a base um, that they had like right on the, the edge Fort of the Columbus, border. I think. Yeah. And rode into there, started shooting, killed a few people. There was a whole shootout. And then he rode back into Mexico. He was hoping that the Americans would chase him because then that would start an international conflict. And then um, hopefully like Mexican, uh, you know, the Mexican civilians would be like, hey, the United States can't just, you know, come into a sovereign country. So and they which, did for a minute. Yeah, too. they did. And and they occupied uh, a whole city and everything, and they were looking for um, they were looking for Pancho Villa, and they couldn't find him. And I think that's why in this movie they focus on Zapata, because uh, you know Pancho Villa had been a, an enemy of the United States after kind of being the person that um, Woodrow Wilson wanted to win the Mexican Revolution for a short period of time because you know he was he was hustling guns to him and everything, and uh, you know at, at some point he had lost, and they um, Carranza, who's the other person that was kind of uh, you know, that wanted to be president and was uh, didn't trust Pancho Villa and didn't want him to kind of have that political power because he thought maybe Pancho Villa would end up being the guy that they elected president at the end of the revolution. Um, he ended up getting the American support and that's when all of this kind of started going down. But for the for the rest of his life, kind of, uh, Pancho Villa was having, like, there, there was this just big civil war and they were trying to get Pancho Villa out of there. And uh, the Americans were too. There was just like a, a massive federal uh, manhunt. And that was one of the things I think that kind of solidified um, like a border patrol. Yes. And uh, also inspired tons of Mexican restaurants. Um, uh, shout out to Zapata's in um, Columbia, Maryland. They're um, Carnitas. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, I have a question about uh, like, is a, uh... Zapata was Zapata president at some point, like like in the movie, like he actually walks away from. No, so it's completely made up, like the so, stuff that they so show. What, so what happened is there's two factions. There were two factions of the revolutionary uh, armies that were kind of ended up in the civil war because uh, Huerta, who you do see in the movie, the guy that assassinates um, Madero, um, so he kind of had taken over, and then they pretty much uh, Carranza, who's a, a governor that had supported Madero, was like, "No, fuck this." They go back into revolt. There's pretty much three Mexican revolutions that happen within a very short amount of time, and different people are kind of vying for political power. Um, Carranza and uh, and and Obregón kind of make a, a pact, and then uh, Pancho Villa and um, the Zapatistas make a pact together. 
pretty much. So those are the two factions then that are fighting. And, um, and they're kind of socialist, you know, like, like, like they're not, ex you know, uh, they're, they're the, you know, I don't want to call them Marxist. Zapata but... definitely was. I mean, Zapata was kind of an agrarian, agrarian socialist pretty much. Yeah. Was, yeah. It, they just it's... wanted to be left the fuck alone. They want, he didn't, he had no ambitions, uh, outside of, um, like his, his state pretty much. Um, he, he kind of just wanted the land from the uh, haciendas to be redistributed back to the villages that lived there. That's all he really wanted. They were fighting for that. Um, they fought for 10 years. They, there was an entire decade of fighting where the Zapatistas stayed. Um, you know, uh, eventually, uh, they're still Zapatistas today. Yeah. Is, is there ever, is there like a proper biopic on this guy at all? Like, is there anything that's like more accurate than the Marlon Brando movie? I mean, I would listen to Revolutions did a really good season on all of this stuff. And it's, uh, it, they're like half hour episodes and it's 27 episodes. And I, I listened to it in a week and actually it kind of had my mind blown by a lot of it. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of the most crazy. I mean, because there's no real, like Pancho Villa and uh, Carranza don't really have a political platform that they're fighting over. They kind of, I mean, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of um, ideas about like centralism and federalism, which is, you know, centralized, a centralized state versus kind of every state being allowed to do what they do here kind of um, in the in the American Revolution and kind of just do their own thing. Pancho Villa didn't really have any political ideas, but um, but it was more of a federalist thing, whereas, uh, you know, the liberal, like liberal conservative kind of stylized uh, Carranza was was hoping to do like a, a more centralized government where kind of, you know, there's a there's a seat of power and he's in it and he's kind of deciding the laws. So mm -hmm. it, it ends up kind of just being this conflict. But I don't think Pancho Villa really thought any of this out. So it ends up being kind of years and years and years of conflict um, that don't really have uh, people fighting for as much a political platform as as just kind of personalities at the end of this revolution, because they've already overthrown like three different leaders. <laughs> And there's so a kinda, bunch of yeah. actually Zapata films that, that have come out over the years, but none of them are, are as famous as this one. Hmm. Mm -hmm. it, it's Marlon just like kind of kind of wild that uh, they I, I, I didn't listen to the whole Revolutions series, but I like checked out some stuff, not not from there, but like, you know, just to yeah. get myself familiar with the, at least the names and the figures. But from what I understood, it, it seems like there were uh, multiple front on which the Mexican revolution happened. And it seems like this movie kind of tried to portray a more simplified picture where Zapata was at the center of it. And I don't think it was like the way that you're talking about it. And, and you know, in the, in the way that I heard, it doesn't seem like that, right? Like it, it it's more like well, he was- they literally, they literally walk in during the movie, the first thing, and Porfirio Diaz, who was the, you know, the president of Mexico for an entire uh, generation, he was president for 34 years. That part is accurate. And kind mm -hmm. of his character seems to be pretty accurate to what I know about the guy. He kind of was a was just the dictator for 34 years that was incredibly corrupt, wanted American influence in there, thought the only way that Mexico was ever going to get kind of uh, prestige is an autocratic regime that had uh, American business interests at the center of it, European business interests at the center of it, kind of uh, sold out a lot of the business interests to Mexico. Not in in the idea, I think that, um, I think a lot of it was because he felt like that was going to be inevitable, that like America was just going to come in and, and so why not, you know, be part of that and why not be part of that development? But he really had an oil cartel, right? Like they found oil during his presidency and they realized that like, you know, they they were kind of Mexico at the time was what we think of as like Saudi Arabia now. Right. Like they had mm -hmm. more more oil um, in Tampico and stuff than 
anywhere really in the world at that point that they had found. So um, he kind of starts selling out all of these things, selling out, you know, um, they, the, the thing about Morelos, um, like the, the place that uh, Zapata's from, is that they found a lot of sugar, like very, very good sugar fields um, that, you know, they, they kind of started, they had these villages. Uh, I was just listening to this today, actually. They, were, they had all of these villages. I think there was like 120 possible villages that were um, in this state. And uh, they started selling them out to like, sugar interests so um you know people would come in there either from america or you know from mexico that just wanted to build these haciendas which were these large estates where they would just blow i mean where they would just uh, grow sugar and you know make a bunch of money off of that and because there it wasn't really like deeds they kind of had these 300 year old deeds from the uh from spain that spain had just said oh yeah yeah well you guys obviously own this land sure they wrote up like whatever kind of deed um you know when mexico went independent um or won their independence um you know they, they had all these different uh deeds that like weren't being respected by the diaz administration because the diaz administration was just like can we just sell this off to whoever wants it can we sell it off to someone that wants to be, make a bunch of money on sugar and the villagers kind of got shunted to the side all of the good land got taken up by sugar interests um and that's kind of where uh zapata you know enters the picture because he's someone that was really fighting in court. I mean, this movie kind of makes it into this whole dramatic thing where he's mm -hmm. like, you know, being taken away and arrested and then everyone's following him, but he was sitting there in court uh, trying to figure out like the best way to represent these villages in court. And that's kind of what he wanted to do. He wanted to be like a village chief. Hmm. Well, which the original script was even more dramatic and yeah, uh, of the introduction of him where he's like sitting on a white horse, <laughs> man I mean, on a white horse. It's cool yeah, though. It's I feel like I feel like it's kind of almost trying to be a western. I mean, it's not even hiding the fact that it's trying to be a western, and uh, and I feel yeah. like it kind of has the qualities of being a western. Uh, I don't know, and it got me thinking that like there are so many possibilities for a western to have more revolutionary potential, like the, to tell more revolutionary stories from this, you know, in the the western language, and I feel like. Uh, this movie kind of got close to that, although, you know, like it has its own deficiencies, etc. But I still felt like if there was a figure who could be like a hero of a Western, like it could probably be uh, Zapata. Like, I don't I don't know if there's anybody else who can like qualify for um, that role as much as this dude. I mean, I think Pancho Villa is the is okay. kind of. But but the thing is that um, he declared war on America, hmm. lost America's favor. His entire thing was like after his defeat, after Woodrow Wilson kind of in, endorsed Carranza's administration, his whole thing was death to gringos, right? So, you know, during He's the a bit of a, like a shitlord general. Yeah. And so during the uh during the 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 Korean War, right, when they're trying to get up all the support for America, and you see it in this movie. Um, when they're like, oh, well, up there, you know, they have a, ho a whole different kind of democracy. They elect their leaders, like really fetishizing the idea of American democracy. Um, during that time period, you know, they're not going to make a movie about Pancho Villa, who was literally like death to the gringos and kept bombing, you know, bombing, shooting and, and destroying whatever American property. Ironically, mm -hmm. originally was the person that America wanted to come out of uh, the Mexican Revolution as the winner. Right. Um, but, you know, as soon as they they endorsed Carranza, who's kind of more of a politician type who had really no interest in the concept of democracy as much as just, you know, ruling from a centralized, um, somewhat autocratic, uh, you know, m like moderate regime, I guess, at the center of the city. Um, 
yeah, so so America wasn't really going to make a movie about an, an enemy of America by that point. Yeah, I would I would also imagine Elia Kazan is probably not going to do that as well. Like what with all the, I mean, we're probably going to get into it soon, but um, with all of the you know testifying and all of that stuff going on, I felt like that scene what you're talking about it kind of really felt like uh, he was writing that to make it very clear where he stood in a sort of way. Like there were several scenes where it seemed like Elia Kazan was speaking, or like I don't know if John Steinbeck was also kind of echoing Elia Kazan. Uh, but it really felt like he was kind of being like, okay, I know I'm making a movie about this guy who's like an agrarian socialist um, who's like, apparently, I don't know if this is true, but has had like correspondences with Lenin, apparently. I don't know if that's 100% true or if it's just legend. Um, I mean, the the time, I I assume it's probably legend because I feel like I would have heard it in the series, but the time, the time's kind of uh, align. I mean, right. you know, he's he's killed in uh, in 1919. Like that's, you know, two years after uh the the second part of the russian revolution so hmm. um yeah yeah and it's and it's like uh the democracy thing was definitely i felt like in a way it really felt out of place i don't know if they would have 100 percent like if if the real zapata was like sitting and talking i don't know if they would have had the same view of uh you know u.s democracy especially at that time i'm pretty sure they would have known like about segregation and stuff like that um, I don't think they would have 100% echoed this view, but it did feel like very plugged in, you know, that... Uh... Well, and, and that's where kind of, I think, some of the ideas about Pancho Villa, who was someone who before declaring war on America and is the last person, if you look up, like, who's the last person to invade uh, America? It's Pancho Villa because he invaded one one fort. Um, right. <laughs> but before that, he was incredibly, um, he's the one person to recognize when, uh, America took a city in Mexico at one point during the, uh, Wilson administration, there was this whole thing. They ended up, um, taking a, a city and he was the one person that was like, oh yeah, America can help out and take a city. It doesn't matter. He was incredibly pro-American. So he, I feel like would have been the person he believed in democracy. He believed in, um, democracy as like kind of a, a you know an abstract concept but um he really he was someone who uh was kind of plucked out of obscurity by madero uh who you see in this movie who's the guy that gets you know two in mm -hmm. the back um <laughs> from from a bunch of uh generals which kind of aligns with what happened but not really um and he really wasn't zapata had uh considered him an enemy before kind of his his assassination because mm. he wasn't like really willing to give up the land and they kind of did give him like the high-handed like you know we'll figure it out like we have to do this by the rule of law thing which throughout this movie is is a big uh is a big motivation and i think correctly but um but this is this is i found a um elia kazan uh clip of him just justifying why he turned on everybody um mm. this is the one clip that i could find where he actually talks about it and someone actually asked him about it which is kind of weird but I can raise a certain period in your life because very early on when you started out, you were a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. And then during the McCarthy era in 1952, you were called to testify before right. the uh, House uh, Committee of American Un-American Activities. Yeah. And you actually testified against a lot of people that you'd worked with, named right. a lot of names. What, what did you hope to gain by that? Gain nothing, and just the truth. The only thing I had to gain was the feeling that I was doing the right thing. I didn't have a damn thing to gain about it. It meant a lot to me to to say that... Uh, but a lot that, of people didn't do that, did they? They would have protected people that they'd known. Well, they can do it. They can, they'd do what they thought was right. I did what I thought was right. I why did you choose that time when you were, in fact, called to testify to speak out? I mean, if you felt as you did, why didn't you say something before? You were, in fact, kicked out of the Communist Party. I mean, were you, in a way, trying to get back at them? Not at all, no, because uh, not until I was actually in the position of making a choice 
which is essentially a very difficult choice, did I make it? You never know what you're going to do in those circumstances, Valerie, until you're confronted. You either must do this or that. There are choices in life, Valerie, that either way you go are painful. I didn't like to do it, but I thought when I thought about it very carefully, I thought it was the better of two uh, mean alternatives. Do you regret the decision now that you did that? No, I don't. I'm the opposite. I, uh, since everything has been revealed since then, I feel that anyone who's gone through Czechoslovakia, Hungary, the Nazi Soviet pack and all the rest of it, who still goes on that way, uh, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't have sympathy. I think they should be brought up as I was to confront their past and say what they really think. You did in fact lose a lot of friends through that and you were blacklisted for a time. Did it make it more difficult for you to work in Hollywood after that? It did, because I had a certain notoriety. It didn't make it more difficult for me to work. But uh, I don't mind losing friends if it's in a good cause. And uh, I also gained a lot of friends. A lot of people admired what I did and said uh, it took courage. I think it took more courage to do what I did than I got more disapproval than what uh, the rest of them did. Sell out. Yeah, I, fuck, I, I fucking hate him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I lived 10 years in Baltimore, and Baltimore is all about snitches getting stitches. So, you know. <laughs> I saw The Wire. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but my studio was actually like right near where they filmed some of The Wire. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, oh my God, say, like, his excuse. I'm, I'm like, dude, you had like, that's, that's not a good excuse. <laughs> and I, of course, he feels like good about the fact that he did it because now his granddaughter has a career in Hollywood. So, yeah, and she's been asked about it and didn't she never always gives like an answer that's uh kind of just like railroads right over it. You know what I mean? She's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's that's my grandpa." Any anyway, um, you know, my family was really creative and it's like you're fucking Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think snitching. is it her dad that wrote uh, um uh, what was that movie? Uh Reversal of Fortune about um Alan Dershowitz? Oh, wow. Is it a positive movie about Alan Dershowitz? Yes, it's based on one of his novels, uh, based on a book he wrote uh, about a uh, very important case he was a part of. Like, like, if you understand the case, it's it's there's a reason why you want to talk about it, and, and he could have done it. This movie is terrible because because um, uh, it ends they, in five minutes because he gets a plea deal or something. Well, Isn't first, that his? First of all, no. Uh, I, I, mean, I want to say that uh, Elliot Kazan and Charlton Heston would make great friends because they both like making movies where you play brownface and uh, play a Mexican. Yes. <laughs> Touch of evil and uh, Touch evil. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I found out that Burt Lancaster played uh, did at least two movies that I found where he played brownface. Um, so you know, you guys, uh, you guys want a palate cleanser? The other side of the uh, the clip we just watched. This is I, I love this so much. I feel like we can keep the tension going though. I mean, like I'm, I, I yeah, do want to see that. I, I need I need I need this as a as a palette. Okay, comment. let's go. Eli Kazan said that it was not easy in America to raise funds to make films on Puerto Ricans and Latinos. In that case, it was not easy to find money to make such a film. Dear Mademoiselle, you have chosen the wrong metro en scène. Vous avez pris le mauvais metteur en scène. Because Ilya Kazan is a traitor. Et parce qu'Ilya Kazan est un traître. He is a man who sold to McCarthy all of his companions. Qui a vendu tous ses compagnons à McCarthy. At a time when he could continue to work in New York. À une époque où il pouvait continuer. 
à une époque où il pouvait continuer à travailler à New York à un très haut salaire. And having sold all of his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer. Et, et après avoir vendu tous ses amis à McCarthy, il a fait un film qui s'appelle Sur les quais et qui est une glorification du mouchard. And therefore, no question which uses him as an example can be answered by me. Et par conséquent, toute question qui euh, se serve de son nom comme exemple ne pourra trouver de réponse auprès de moi. I have to add, I have to add that he is a very good director. Je dois ajouter que c'est un excellent metteur en scène. Hell yeah. I I don't know. I love I love Orson Welles. That's yeah. one of the one of the reasons I love uh, when Joseph McBride comes on so much is that he actually was like directed by Orson Welles, and I can ask him a million questions about that. Yes. So, so <laughs> next time he comes on, we'll have to talk to him about uh, uh, Kazan and, and and like, you know, if he if he was like always like cursing him and like. I, I think when when Kazan uh, there was some award that he won or something that actually Joseph McBride was involved in in the process of writing. Um, I, I might be mixing it up with Capra, but I thought that he had something that he had written at one point about uh, being involved in, in some Lifetime Achievement Award or something that um, Elia Kazan had won. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I love Orson Welles for that. Um, yeah. I also feel like, uh, you know, now that we are reading, I don't know, maybe it was already like, this was my introduction to the no to the notion that like On the Waterfront is an informer celebration movie. This kind of actually got me to see Viva Zapata itself. Like there are a couple of scenes in Viva Zapata where he comes pretty close to almost like do a little bit of apologia for almost like preemptively, like he's kind of talk or something. Had, uh, had, had it happened yet? Had his testimony? I don't I don't know what year. Um, but like there was a scene where, I mean, the, the, the Fredo scene, right? Like the Fredito thing that you were talking about. Oh, wow. Um, so um, April 10th, 1952 was uh the the huac uh the huac uh testimony <laughs> that, that, that that he gave um yeah well, we here at movie yeah. extravaganza really want to have al pacino do a huac, huac! Um, huac! <laughs> uh, film so please somebody in hollywood make this happen <laughs> isn't he dating like a 26 year old yeah he's he's, da he's dating someone that's a, a lot younger than him but i you know what i i think that uh he deserves it yeah, <laughs> he might age gap. What if she's doing elder abuse? That's the thing. He's eighty-one. What if she's doing oh, yeah. elder abuse and in and the age gap doesn't matter? That's my question. Or she's yeah. just waiting for him to die. Money. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not married though. It's just Cause, cause that's what Anna Nicole Smith did with her last husband. Uh, you know, with that husband. But that's not. Husband. It's not his wife. It's his girl. It's his okay. uh, girl. Well, whatever. So. Well, she's probably one marriage, kind of like an Amber Heard, Giant Depp situation. <laughs> I saw that thing yesterday where it said uh, Amber Heard spit on her assistant or whatever. And dude, any any normal person like that wasn't a celebrity that just, like that's assault. That's that's yeah. literally somebody testifying. Oh yeah, I got assaulted by Amber Heard during uh, <laughs> during their back and forth testimony. Also, the fucking therapist. I don't I don't want to go into the whole. Yeah, you know, probably but, not. But I'll the, be doing the, that. The therapist, the therapist is like, oh, it's mutual abuse, but then doesn't provide any example of Johnny Depp abusing her. And just mm. provides examples of Johnny Depp uh, getting abused. So, like, is it is it mutual abuse? Like, that doesn't. I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Oh. <laughs> okay. 
Um, but yeah, coming coming back to this, like, uh, did did this movie come out after his testimony? So it was the same year. Uh, I, I let me see. Yeah, it looks like he was probably making it while while he was testifying, right? Well, yeah, that, that's why those had those weird scenes set in DC, which made no sense. It's like <laughs> let me let me let me add a scene real quick. Let me add a scene. Speaking yeah. is okay. All right. <laughs> there, there was a scene. It was bad. <laughs> yeah, and and like the, the scene that he was, uh, you know, he was no, talking so about. No, his testimony was after this movie was released uh, oh, by okay. by three months. Oh. No, I feel like he was already ready to do it. It kind of, uh, it kind no of wonder. felt like that. No wonder this movie's so inaccurate. He really <laughs> didn't want to play off him being a good socialist. Yeah, I, well, I really want to get through uh, the the Steinbeck script now because, like, hmm. Steinbeck's a comrade. Like, like if he's going to write a yeah. script on Zapata. I'm not going to say it's going to be 100% accurate because he knows it's for Hollywood and, you know, probably doing it for the paycheck. But at the same time, he probably put in enough stuff to, you know, because, you know, Steinbeck was a comrade. Um, but it also makes me, <laughs> the movie makes me think about if the last scene was Marlon Brando being like, tell me again how it's going to be once we get the land. And, <laughs> and he's, like, <laughs> he's like, well, we're going to have a little bit of uh, uh, some space. For rabbits, and then I get to tend the rabbits. Yes, you get to. <laughs> yes, Emiliano, you get to tend the rabbits. <laughs> I saw. Speaking of with all this, I saw Johnny Depp and Chris O'Dowd in a production of Mice and Men. Really? Was on Broadway, good? yeah, back in like 2014. I, I actually, I like, I, I remember being. I mean, I was very disturbed by it. I read it in, I want to say high school, but maybe middle yep. school. I and read it in high school. I was, well. I was very disturbed by, but I, like, I think it's a very good book. Like, it's, it is. It's like extremely well written it kind of gives you the like the perspective of of people kind of living through this um like living through the dust bowl and everything like you know like the post dust bowl whatever like economic crash really well like i i think that that's actually a really good book but like the fact that it's steinbeck that wrote this that's the first thing that i definitely thought of <laughs> tell me how it's gonna be once we get the land <laughs> <laughs> So I, I also felt like uh, he didn't like being asked the question. Um, I mean, Arson Wells like had some you know problems with being asked the question as well. But uh, Kazan totally like the moment the question came, he was like, "Okay, I see what's coming here." Well, and... it, it's kind of defined his career since. I mean, you know, and and we can definitely get to this. I have uh, the reaction to you know the reaction when he got his like lifetime achievement oscar or whatever which is something that i don't know why the fuck they do why not just wait for someone to have a movie that you know that's like good enough to kind of do something like that but they kind of they gave him like an honorary oscar but it's like his eighth oscar so it's not like why? It's, not like I mean, it's, were... it's not like uh you know um what's his name who, who, yeah Medea, um who's never gonna make an oscar be, movie. Right, yeah. who really is a great guy and actually a pretty good actor like you know yeah well, I mean, also, um, they uh, they had um, – they gave Scorsese that kind of – I mean, with The Departed, right? Like, The Departed mm -hmm. is not a movie that's, like, Oscar-worthy, but they had passed over Scorsese so many times. They kind of gave him a, a lifetime achievement. Uh, know, oh, yeah. I, I feel like they're going to do that with Glenn Close because she's been nominated I don't know how many times, and they're just probably going to give her the Oscar for Sunset Boulevard when that comes out. And, <laughs> yeah. and they, did it, they did it for Leo with The Revenant. And yeah. it's not a movie that anyone really cared to watch or whatever. But it might be like, the Aviator was probably his best film. Yeah. But, really, Jamie Fox, but that was a very, very like good year for film. So like, of course, there was a lot of competition. 
but they yeah, I mean, so, like, so they so they did that for so they did it for uh Elia Kazan. I believe it was in 1999 um yeah. is the year that he got his like whatever and it was incredibly controversial. Um, was he there, still alive at the time? Yeah. Yeah, he died in 2003. Yeah, Orson yeah, Welles so he wasn't. Got he died a, after a, Transformers the movie. It's hmm. an honorary uh Oscar and it was incredibly controversial. They had a press conference where all the Hollywood blacklisted um the ones that were still alive, the the former kind of blacklisted people had like these press conferences where they were like, we don't think that this is appropriate. And mm. they asked a bunch of people, um, well, they asked like everyone who, who was kind of attending the Oscars that year. Um, and, and I found this clip of, and this is, they asked a lot of new generation actors who mm. weren't like, you know, famous or alive, I don't think, or maybe alive, but like not, you know, working during that time period. So their answers are a little weird, but it is, it is interesting to see the, uh, see like the blacklisted real heroes. There was a, there was a bunch of different protests, um, from, from people who actually were blacklisted by this. The billion people are going to know that there are people in Los Angeles who will not be silent when a confessed snitch stool pigeon uh, gets an award. You can't separate his art from his life, and you can't separate his life from the lives he ruined. Kazan is nothing more than a lowly stool pigeon of the McCarthy area. He'd rather have his own personal attributes to his fancy cars and the hell with his fellow workers. He is a disgrace to the humankind. I'd be really interested to see what's on his mind because I'm sure there's a lot of things flooding through it right now. You know, uh, he certainly had to pay an awful price because uh, a business he clearly loves so much, he must feel very outside. And I, I can empathize with that feeling, having to go up there in front of a lot of people. I mean, the expectations that uh, people are putting on this, it seems uh, monumental right now. I didn't know people made movies like his, and movies about people like me. And it was an extraordinary and life-changing experience. But I, uh, I am violently opposed to everything that was done by the Un-American Activities Committee. And uh, I feel sad about his testament. I think it's good that there is a, a hoopla-la, because it shows we live in a democracy, this freedom of speech, and you know we are honoring an extraordinary artist. Period. That's what the that's what this evening's about. I don't know who you are, but I'll find you. <laughs> I don't know. I love the, the one guy who's just like um the, the McCarthy area. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that guy kind of—he's a stool pigeon, kind of base. So, yeah. That guy definitely like had a stroke though, and yeah, yeah. no, I don't. I don't mean to yeah, make fun of guy. Him, but that, that, that did make me laugh. He's probably um, no longer with us. R.I.P. to a legend. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's. I mean, I just. It's interesting to think about. Uh, do, we, do we know who that was? No. No, I, yeah, I don't know. Okay. But you know, they they kind of picked that 
like you, you have to assume that they asked a lot of different people and that's the person that they picked to represent the, you know, the yeah. anti. Yeah. And, uh, and Patrick Stewart has weird politics. I don't know if you know his. Uh, him, I don't know. Of- he, he's like a self-declared socialist, right? Like he calls yeah. himself a socialist and everything. He does call himself a socialist, but he's like a, a Warren Ellen socialist. So he's like, um, oh. he he uh, he met Warren Ellis once and Warren Ellis tells the story. And, uh, you know, like Warren Ellis is this big, fat, dumpy looking British guy. I love him as a writer. He's also a bit of a creep, but that's a whole other story. We can talk about that another time. And, but apparently um, Patrick Stewart was a big fan of Transmetropolitan, which is an amazing book. And called him up and said, you know, like, like, oh, I'd love to meet sometime. I'm love to talk. I'd to love to meet sometime. So, so <laughs> he shows up, and, and um, uh, his security wouldn't let Warren Ellis see him because it was, you know, Warren Ellis. Um, and finally, he's just like, yeah, no, no, he's expecting me. And they're like, they're like, you know, Mr. Stewart, there's a, there's a, a Warren Ellis here to see you. It's like, oh yes, yes, send him in, send him in. So he comes in, and he's like, Warren, I have a question for you. I'm going to meet Prince Charles next week, and I want to know what what Spider Jerusalem would do. I my first instinct is to kick him in the balls. What did Garth Ennis do? No, uh, uh, Garth Ennis. No, I don't know. There's a comment. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, uh, Garth Ennis did Preacher. Um, no, I know. I know who I know who Garth Ennis is. I talk about we've, we've talked about Preacher on multiple occasions on the show. I'm just yeah. wondering. Is it better Warren Ellis than Garth Ennis? I don't know. Um, uh, Garth Ennis doesn't uh, sexually abuse a bunch of people. So, um, what is it with British? Like, I feel like there's a lot of British celebrities that have. But they're both British. Oh, Garth <laughs> Ennis is fash. I oh, mean, is he? Okay. I'm not surprised. Fash. Uh, yeah, I know the boys. Yeah. I, I oh, know I know. I know the, the boys. boys. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no boys. A, we go mean, way back. No, in, fact, in fact, the artist of the boys was the artist on Transmetropolitan. Um, although he had to dip out towards the end of the run of the boys because he Speaking had a really out. bad drug habit. Um, which he's sick <laughs> at now. He's clean and sober, and he's got a really great Twitter account. So, um, you know, hit up Derek Robinson. Damn. Um, I'm not surprised, but I've never really like uh, delved into Garth Ennis's politics. Uh, yeah. Warren Ellis has decent politics from his standing but he's not really a great person um but a lot of that was like anyone who's northern irish you know uh, you know who has based um uh politics is actually the quote-unquote son of professor x uh david holler aka dan stevens he called up boris johnson on live television everyone was like oh my god and i'm like seriously british people chill the fuck out (laughs) at the very least you should be able to call out boris johnson like i mean that's like i think lowest common denominator yeah and I just love the fact that that um, Patrick Stewart's calling up Warren Ellis to ask if he should kick Prince Charles in the balls. Did you guys? Did you guys see? I don't. I don't know what the name of this Tory politician is, but there was this thing where he was defending Boris Johnson, and he like this. This went viral this week. Um, the guy had the same hairstyle as Boris Johnson does. And like, I, I ended up doing research into this entire thing and realizing that like this guy had been called out on the floor of British Parliament for having a wig, and it's like an identical wig to the Boris Johnson wig. I don't know. He 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 was defending Boris Johnson on BBC, and like the clip went viral hmm. this week. Yeah, that's news to me that like Boris Johnson's is a wig. I thought it was his hair. No, this is this this. I'm talking about this other politician. I oh, think okay. that is his hair, but this guy is identical hair to. Uh, yeah, wait, I'm gonna I'll find this guy, but you know, keep going with the conversation. Yeah, I mean, like I, I was also I feel like the moment uh, any of these actors, like even more, 
I don't know. I'm not covering for Patrick Stewart, but even if he had like a little more, uh, he was like at least the one who even brought it up. He's saying he's vehemently against uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. But uh, I feel like if he as much as said a word against, you know, or like in favor of uh, the, the communist writers, he's probably not going to get a role after that or something. And, and it, it almost felt like they all knew that that was going to happen. Like, it was almost like an ambush. It's like, what do you have to say about Ilya Kazan? And then, like, if the first person who says he's a he's a snitch, he's fuck him, uh, they're gonna be like, don't book this guy ever again or something. Yeah. Well, so I, I watched a clip and I didn't grab this clip, but there was a clip of uh, Richard Dreyfus, who I guess originally was open to Ilya Kazan getting the Oscar, but then realized, like, thought about it and was like, this guy has seven Oscars and he's a fucking piece of shit. So I watched a, a, a podcast where Richard Dreyfus is talking about what a piece of shit he was. And I guess mm-hmm. at one point, Elliot Kazan had r- written a uh, biography and pretty much had said that he like slept with the wives of everybody that he had ratted on that was like collaborating with him. Holy and shit, man. like, yeah. So Richard Dreyfus like called him out for that after kind of first supporting that within the Academy and then realizing like, no, this guy's gotten enough fucking awards. <laughs> Um, like Michael Fabricant is who I was talking about, by the way. Um, trying to find it. It's just yeah. like he he does like I, I don't know. The, the answer was so snivelly that like it just seems like he's he's not. You know the whole like I I I felt like it was the right thing to do. It's like uh, you know I was in the position to do that, and it's like it's such a what's his name the the O'Neill guy. Like it kind of felt like that, but it's like he's an older person. It's not like he's a nineteen year old who got you know caught by the fbi and like he has no choice but to snitch or something this dude actually had options and he doesn't even you know seem like he recognizes that or something i feel like there's a lot of reactionary um people during this time period though that came through uh you know that that came from europe and and suddenly were you know immigrated to america and um elliot kazan was was greek but his family was greek but they were in turkey i guess as a turkish or as a turkish minority or something and there's like a lot of i mean greece had its own issues with like you know the cia coming through and and kind of doing a coup to put down the greek communists like that's one of the first coups that we did um so i i i think that a lot of people within that generation were incredibly reactionary the ones that made it to the united states i mean um like that is why they made it to the united states right like Mm-hmm. They were kind of reactionary figures within that. And so when he talks about, you know, oh, well, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that uh, this is communism and it's dangerous. I mean, he was a communist for the first few years of his career. A lot of times, though, within Hollywood, it was the kind of a social thing. And it wasn't like they right. had any kind of committed uh, communist or socialist politics. But still, I mean, he kind of I don't know. It's interesting. It reminds me of like. There's a, a Phil Ox song called uh, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. Mm-hmm. And like the lyrics are something like, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin, um, even went to socialist meetings. I uh, learned every union hymn. Um, uh, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. Love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. <laughs> and that's that's what it kind of reminds me of, right? Like, it was okay when I did it, but as a young person i didn't know any better but now that i'm kind of older and and i'm in front of you know the mccarthy hearings and i guess also uh he had a elia kazan's wife at the time was like incredibly reactionary and it decided that she had the same politics as john wayne if you know anything about john wayne's politics um he was a a big bircher 
like John Birch Society, like, you know, the 1950s equivalent of QAnon pretty much. Did you ever see the uh, Frank Sinatra interview where he calls out how bad John Wayne's politics are? No, I haven't. It's in Playboy. Um, so oh. read it for the articles here. Um, but there, there's this like 1971 article where, where uh, Frank Sinatra just like goes ham at, uh, um, at, at John Wayne and, and just like, you know, rips him a new one as far as his politics. Because uh, Sinatra's politics weren't terrible. Uh, I, I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, Sinatra's this, uh, you know, comrade or anything like that. But I mean, no, Sinatra was, was on the right a, side of things. He was kind of a Democrat. He was a Democrat. Well, he was, he, was, he was a Democrat under Roosevelt. He was a Democrat under Truman. He was a Democrat, especially under uh, Kennedy, who, you know, was his, was his pal, was his buddy. Like, you know, yeah. that, there's the whole, all those conspiracy theories. Or I don't even know if they're conspiracy theories about, you know, Sinatra being uh, Kennedy's mob connection that ended up helping him win the election. I mean, I don't know if that's even fully Whatever. a conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah, the Chicago but, thing. Like... And then, and then um, with Nixon, he kind of turned over to a more reactionary set of politics, became a Republican. Reagan was his, was also his friend. Hmm. Uh, yeah, like so. just like basically tells you that you cannot trust a Hollywood uh, person with their politics, right? Like it's just like wherever the winds are blowing, and it's, it's just. Well, I mean, everybody yeah. has weird arcs too. Like, like let's you know, let's not just say uh, Hollywood because because there's plenty of people who. Yeah, but I like think with I think with uh, Sinatra specifically, it was about how much um, he could really have access to the uh oval office this is what i was talking about by the way with with this guy's hair why do all british people wow. have hair like that and his name I is fabricant that's it's like it's like boris johnson meets terry potter it's yeah kind of i mean it's like that to hide his little scar it's it's Draco Malfoy as an adult. Well, Draco Malfoy ends up having hair like his dad, long, like but, long. I don't know. Anything about guy, I guess, got so called long. out. Um, they called him out on on like the the floor of Parliament for having a wig at one point, and yeah. <laughs> and he said he said he has a little bit of uh, I think he said he he had a little help with with, with his hairline, but not not the way that they think or something. I don't know. Good hair plugs. <laughs> Yeah, be like Elon Musk. Get hair plugs. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? He's Elon Musk hair is his grown back. There's no way that that's well. Maybe he has billionaire uh, orphan blood serum that he can put on his hair. But... Yeah, it rubs it. But but apparently Jeff Bezos didn't get the uh, orphan blood hair rub. Yeah, but he Ooh, put it. Jeff Bezos, that's Jeff Bezos' way of like you know, he's, he's like he's like I got balls. I can be hairless on the top of my head and be bald he's he's on his left lex luther arc yes yeah he's but like, yeah so, the super villain i'm gonna look like the super villain i really am <laughs> but yeah so so talking about uh elia kazan's politics I, I think that there is like a reactionary european element to it that um yeah i don't know it's it's definitely <sighs> I, I was watching something yesterday that was talking about, I guess he went first in front of the House on American Activities Committee in secret, and they didn't make him name names. He just mm -hmm. kind of talked about um, like the Hollywood influence of uh, communists or something. And he kind of talked in generalities. And then his wife, who had kind of inherited her politics, she decided from John Wayne um, at the same time as kind of 
you know, realizing in a newspaper, his wife said something in a newspaper like, oh, they didn't even make him name names or something. And then they realized, oh, he didn't name names. We should have him back in front of the House on American Activities Committee. So he went for a second time. And that's when he named uh, all of his collaborators pretty much. But there was also something with Arthur Miller and him where they decided mm. to name each other or something. And I, I don't know. There's a whole. Uh, is Marilyn Monroe involved in this? Marilyn Monroe? Well, she was married to Arthur Miller. Yeah. Also, to anyone who went to high school knows for a fact that you had to read The Crucible in English 3 and well, watch the movie with Winona Ryder. Yeah. Why would you go all the way to make like a, a revolutionary figure movie, like especially someone who could be seen as like having more Marxist-Leninist you know, perspectives or whatnot, and maybe not exactly Marxist-Leninist because they were contemporaries, and at that time, like you were probably... It's, it's it's anachronistic to call him a Leninist, but, you know, like Zapata is like a guy who is definitely heroic and like he's a nationalistic figure and you have Marxist, all of these... Marxist uh, Bakuninist or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, and, and like you, you make a movie about that and I guess like there is a little bit of a revisionism because you are kind of making him seem like he's like pro-liberal -democ democracy in a funny way but well, i mean that's what that just happened with trial of the chicago eight or sir chicago what it was seven, chicago seven. seven yeah yeah it, well it started uh, out as the with, chicago eight and then yeah yeah which yeah, is why yeah, I, I messed yeah. up but anyways the the movie chicago trial seven where they completely changed the <laughs> politics of um trial seven uh, chicago <laughs> where, where aaron sorkin changed the politics of of um uh what's this abby hoffman you know like, like he's like uh, I love Abby Hall. Uh, like I like hit hit like his suicide just still makes me mad because his excuse was y'all lazy. Hmm. Well, yes. I I think that Sorkin don't get me started on Chicago Seven, but Sorkin kind of turns it into um on one That's hand on, on like on one hand you have um the more SDS I guess style of uh. Of, of politics and he's like oh well that's all about winning elections and organizing like political figures and the other side you have abby hoffman and you um, think he actually thought that deeply about it well i i think that he kind of he he turned the politics down to on one side media spectacle i don't think he side, even he didn't even deal with the media spectacle i mean it's it's a bad biopic just like this movie was yeah so, you know it's it's but it, it seems like it seems like I don't think I'm not saying that he thought about it that deeply, but like it seems like the the two sides that are fighting it out, kind of or arguing it out during Trial of Chicago Seven, are on one hand uh, people that are serious about actually getting involved in, in politics and like actually pushing uh, for elections. That's the one side of progressive politics in this movie, and then the other side is like media spectacle and you know pretending to levitate the White House and like. But then, but then it comes down to Abby Hoffman saying, "Well, we don't have enough money to actually run candidates." And it seems like it seems like the entire—I'm not saying that he thought about it deeply—but like Aaron Sorkin's entire uh, uh, purview of how radical politics could go is like: on one hand, you have people actually running for elections; on the other hand, you have unserious people that are causing media spectacle, and that's kind of the, the farthest his imagination can go. Yeah, I, I mean, the farthest his imagination can go is like a far-right Democrat, like Clinton. Um, right. you know, that, that's as Which as he kind gets. of Tom Hayden, uh, somewhat became because, uh, yeah, <laughs> he made but, but very the, good the thing is, though, is like, 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 um, <laughs> you know, like, 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 you know, both this movie and um, Trial of Chicago Seven, you know, completely uh, whitewashed the, the, the politics of, of the subject matter, um, yeah, and, and 
both movies. And I think, like, I think, like, and here's I, the thing, like, like when yeah. Steven Spielberg first asked him to write this movie, because this was uh, Steven Spielberg wanted yeah. to write it initially. He he, uh, he goes, hey, could you could you do a story on Chicago Trial Seven? He's like, sure. And so Aaron Sorkin calls up his dad and goes, hey dad, what's the trial of Chicago Seven? <laughs> like that's how deeply Aaron Sorkin thinks about things. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that he thought about it deeply. I guess my my point that I was trying to make is that. Um, I just think that, that his imagination, right? That's the farthest it can really go. Yeah. The idea of radical politics. And I think that uh, there, there's incredible failings on the part of everyone really involved in the trial of Chicago 7 in real life. Because, you know, um, Rick Perlstein, not to mention Rick Perlstein's <laughs> books again, but I, I forget whether... The great it, books? I, they are great more books. people are reading them. Um, uh, he, he went on Dick Cavett's show, which I'm going to have Dick Cavett clips when we talk about Marlon Brando. I have a bunch of them. But uh, he, they went on Dick Cavett's show, and uh, it was a whole controversial thing because they were like, oh, they're going to push for you know radical radical politics. They're going to push for radical politics. And it turns out um, all of them were kind of just sitting there in a row talking about how they're really into like self-care now. And they're mm -hmm. really into like the idea that you know the revolution, which is, is a big thing that happened during this time period. And uh, – it's chronicled really well um, by Adam Curtis, who has Jane Fonda, who was married to Tom Hayden. And, you know, when she has her workout videos, pretty much it's like, um, you know, the revolution is now inside of you. you kind of you know, it's no longer about collective politics. It's about, you know, um, revolution can only really happen from the inside. And they were very much on the forefront of that, which is kind of the neoliberal turn that happened. Um, was a was a you know that that was that moment where people kind of radicals kind of decided well you know the, the real way to you know and and it has to do with product placement too and like you know selling ideas like your workout videos or selling different um you, you know things for for self-care but it's like self-care and and taking care of yourself can really have the radical inside of here taken care of and but like but their appearance on Dick Cavett uh, kind of embodied that, and there was nothing actually radical that that happened. And um, they were like the original Jimmy Dore. I'm friends with Dick Cavett on uh, Facebook. Right. Yeah. yeah Ooh, I do a one-on-one interview. Is yeah, um, get get Dick Cavett on movie training extravaganza? I use so many of his clips. Oh, no, no, I love, we would love that. Yeah, I love. I like, love. He is I so, love Dick Cavett. Like I, he's this, one of my favorite like interviewers. Like you know, mine too. So th so this this gets us to. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is Marlon Brando, who actually is, I mean, you know, indigenous land rights are really the point of Zapata's politics, right? Like the Zapatistas, what they were really about, they didn't care about what was happening outside of Morelos. Like they were about like indigenous land rights, like self-determination, right? Like yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't just, uh, you know, say that it's like some kind of reparations. It's more like they get to decide their fates, etc. I mean, like, I particularly like the scene where he hands uh, the rifle uh, to Madero and says, like, it's kind of like the Black Panther kind of ma maxim where it's like, you know, I, I will give you the watch because you are holding the gun. Now I need the gun and I need to be yeah. armed. And uh, without that, like, you can take whatever I uh, whatever I have and I wouldn't have any, you know, way to get back from you. So um, it's more like, you know, you get to govern yourself and... Um, and and it does it did feel like it was a revolutionary statement. That's what like makes me. I mean, unlike Trial of Chicago Seven, I would say that this movie actually has a little more. Uh, I would say integrity because it does like say uh, have like these scenes where you know Brando does like do these things which are pretty pretty cool. Uh, it was it was, it was it you that got me it. to rewatch Trial of Chicago Seven when we did our Oscars thing. I remember I'd fallen asleep the first time and I was like, I. I 
yeah, I it was it was when we talked about doing our Oscars uh, right. article that turned into that stream, and I rewatched Trial of Chicago Seven. Not a good movie. I will. I mean, I guess well written, but like you know, maybe uh, my my no. favorite uh, comment from because uh, I did a reverse letterbox one liners when Conan came on uh, Ben Burgess. Yeah, and um, one of them was uh, it's a shame that uh, Aaron uh, the writer Aaron Sorkin had to work with the director Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> And like now he's doing master classes about how he's a he's a visionary director. Like, come on, oh, man, he's give me a break. always been like high on his own supply. That dude, like even even like before, well, I mean before it was cocaine uh, that he was high on. But now it's ego. Yeah, now now it's ego. Well, it was ego before because like he actually used to go on message boards and like would attack people on message boards who would say things about bad about um uh, about the West Wing, and wow. then. And then he'd actually write episodes about the West Wing, making fun of the people on those message boards. My my brother uh, went to school with the daughter of John Wells, who was one of the writers on West Wing. Uh, and, he's, he's the um, guy who took over after Sorkin left. Yeah, so he went. He went. My brother went on vacation to Hawaii with his daughter, and I guess uh, at one point they watched the entirety of West Wing, and then. I was watching. Um, well, I wasn't watching. Well, so why not ER during during oh, uh, also during during else. Biden's State of the Union? My brother texted me and went, "I think he did very well in that speech. I think Biden's killing it." And I was like, and then my mom the next day was like, "Yeah, well, he watched every episode of the West Wing." And I was like, "Oh, so that's why he thinks Biden's speech." Was yeah. it. Wow, that was like a, a burn for your brother, I suppose. <laughs> well, oh! <laughs> what so, are we gonna start discussing about Marlon Brando and his performance in this movie? Because it was kind of all over the place. Like the I Brando. can't read. Which Emiliano Zapata could very much read. The first thing, if you look at a uh, Library of Congress, has like their article on Zapata. The first thing is like he learned how to read and write at an early age. Didn't have much formal mm. education outside of that. It's like, oh, he learned to read and write. He could read. <laughs> wow so that's like a that's in addition to being in brown face that was actually like uh what is it called like uh bigotry of low expectations like yeah. essentially he's yeah. yeah wow yeah i mean i was just gonna say racist but i, I like yours better brando is a comrade in the political sense i mean whenever i think about what, what what's it last last time on paris yeah yeah that mm. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I did get, like, a, you know, precursor for that uh, in that scene. I thought that was a good scene, though. I mean, uh, he does, like, kind of grab her by the hand or whatever. Like, and it was extremely rough and violent. But then, like, she kind of gives it back to him by, like, she, almost, like, you know. Read. <laughs> no, 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 no. She put, draws the knife and, like, she puts it at yeah. his chest or something like that. It kind of made it seem, like, almost. Oh, you mean like, the last time you were in Paris. Yeah, I thought you meant this <laughs> this movie. No, yeah, that that whole that whole thing is fucked is fucked up though. Like she wasn't expecting that there was actually going to be a simulated. No, no, I wasn't talking about the last time on Paris, man. Like oh. I'm talking about the scene in this where uh, they actually have like a physical altercation. The first time she he meets uh, Joseph. Yeah, in, in the church, and yeah, yeah, which which also is pretty racist because the brother keeps being like, "Oh, I would have just taken her," and like, yeah. which isn't something that there's no like there's no record of Zapata having that kind of interaction with 
someone above his class. Like, I don't know. That's not, that's not something that goes into the story. Like they just added that. Now, I got a question that. for you for, since you've listened to all of the revolution stories, because yeah. one of the things that um, struck me is during the time when, when Spain was in charge, there was, there was a, uh, everything was divided up by race, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Mexican, uh, you know, revolution very much was about class. Um, Cause at the end it was the middle class that won. Um, yeah. I mean, kind of, I, yeah. I, I think that, so ideas about class are kind of uh, interesting because number one, you know, like Mexico, Mexico is still at this point, a lot of like the peasantry is kind of the majority, the vast majority, right? Like, yeah. and, and something incredibly interesting that I learned during the revolution series is that um, during this time period, like, well, number one, like socialist and anarchist ideas were very much filtering in, uh, you know, as literature and people were kind right. of organizing. And that Flores chap that I was talking about before that's related to Jake Flores. Um, he actually was a socialist satirist. Really? Publishing <laughs> newspapers in, in Mexico, uh, fled to Texas for a little while during the revolution, but then went back. Um, and because uh, there's a there's like something called like the Flores Magon brothers or something who were anarcho socialists that were actually might incredibly be. inspired by uh, like the, the conquest of, of bread or whatever, like and incredibly inspired by uh, Bakunin, like like that that whole sect of like you know, yeah, that, that might be Jake's uh, relative. That that's 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 fascinating because yeah, that guy did flee to uh, Texas. Hey, Jake Flores, come on the show again, <laughs> again, <laughs> but um actually one of the few guests that I've hung out with in person before. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think three days after, I think that was three days after we had him on too. I didn't know him before that. Um, but no, so, so these ideas though, uh, throughout this, like industrial workers in the cities were a very small population, but they did play deciding roles in uh, different people, whether it's Obergon, who actually did make deals with, uh, you know, the industrial workers within the city. They did have labor unions. One of the first, um, a lot of the first uh, clashes, I think, at the beginning of the revolution, right before they actually started deciding that Porfirio Diaz and the Porfiriata is like a real is a real like era of Mexican history, which is where this movie starts out uh, in. And um, like there were these labor clashes. And one of the big things that happened is there was a, a mine near the border of Arizona Um owned by an American, uh, you know, mining company. And he had people from Arizona come into Mexico, break their sovereignty to break up this uh, labor strike that was happening within a mine. And, you know, that was one of the big things that had people um, like incredibly upset with the, with the Preferiata being like, cause you know, Preferio Diaz, who is the president at the beginning of this movie, um, the guy that's kind of high handing them at the beginning that's sitting in the office, mm. the older guy that's like, um, my children, like that guy, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the big thing that they kind of said about him was he's the uh, he's the mother to foreigners, but stepmother to Mexicans because he let so much foreign business into the country mm. that, you know, so I, I think that class did play a role in it, but maybe not a, as much of a role as um, it did elsewhere around the same time. Um, because, you know, the middle class were the people that really wanted political change, right? Like Madero, who, who's the first president that kind of wins in this, um, who, you know, is the one that ends up getting killed by Huerta, like, which is a real thing that happened, um, kind of had the middle classes behind him because they were the ones that wanted participation within. That's the only thing that actually happened in the movie. No, right. <laughs> one of, I mean, one of very few. few. Yeah. <laughs> it was a few. <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion and, and considering that this is, uh, you don't even get the period, right? It kind of feels almost like it's in the 19th century, but it's actually happening in 1910 to 20. 
and like yeah. this is exactly overlapping with the world war um and yeah. you don't and really get a sense of the economic realities of what's actually going on it just seems like almost like a small uh peasantry that uh, has their land taken away from them and these are people who are fighting for the land back yeah. type of thing cuz you also have a couple other factors that are going on which which uh we haven't quite touched on uh one uh you know like the Texas Rangers one of hmm. their jobs for years was to um uh take like like uh the the Tejanos the 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 Mexican uh born tech you know the born Texans um and basically run them out of the state run them hmm. run them back to Mexico um and to take their land so white people can have them so so yeah. so like like the Texas Rangers is is a inherently racist organization from jump and that's that's basically what their their uh storied history began as and also why like the border patrol whenever they first started up was like full of clan members and former Texas Rangers you know just just kind of the worst of the worst um so you also you also had um <clears throat> so Zapata's literally just fighting within Morelos for the most part which is like you know like the second smallest state in southern Mexico like that's kind of where he wants to be he doesn't really care about what's happening on the wider scale of things what the Zapata like the, the Zapatistas wanted was they wanted the the um haciendas that had taken over right like these sugar plantations pretty much that were uh that had taken 75% of the good land from villages and kind of broken up villages and just kind of given them the shit land they just wanted the land redistributed so there was a thing that uh that they, they don't even mention in this movie the big thing that um that Zapata is known for is the plan of Ayala which is a written out plan um which he he wrote like he can write like he, <laughs> he can read and he can write like don't worry about that like the real guy and he wrote out a plan and it's uh for radical land redistrib redistribution within Morelos like his state hmm. um and then once he kind of started you know they, they won on and off in different time periods he was like well now i want to redistribute uh all of the land in mexico but that was never really their intention their in intention was just their state to get the land back for these villages and they did you know zapata was killed um in the way that they show in this movie right like they tricked mm -hmm. him and then he arrived and then i mean there was nothing about a white horse but he arrived and and got riddled full of bullets as kind of a trick and that is a real thing that happened but like the you know the zapatistas stayed together and the the point of this movie seemed to be that the people are more important than any leader that kind right, of right. Uh, you know that you could follow the, the actual story proves that because he gets killed off and these you know the chiefs and these uh these villagers they stay together and they actually end up um becoming such a formidable force that Obregón who ends up you know kind of winning the Mexican revolution before being you know killed a few years later but like you know Obregón has to um actually ally with them and actually Morelos gets their land they get the plan of Ayala comes true like in the end without mm. Zapata but they do get their land you know redistributed to them and uh they get high positions within the the military like the you know um the two biggest generals that he had that weren't him like they 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 kind of win in the end and that's not touched on in this and it seems like that's something that could have been a, a far more um uh you know that's something that they could have shown instead of just kind of at the end being like oh well Zapata might return like no within six months they were back to fighting the same way mm -hmm. they were fighting before mm -hmm. demanding the same thing and they won they did um it did like have a very Judas and the Black Messiah type ending where it's like it was the end of the road for the movement itself because they caught this guy and it was like a brutalized sort of ending. I mean it ends on a sort of like whatever like you know a positive note of like showing the horse and if the horse is around then he's probably also in spirit around and stuff like that but 
uh, it did make it materially seem as if like it was the end of the road for this dude. Um, for for the movement, not not just him and yeah, which uh, was funny because the Zapatistas is still around are are still around today and dying. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know um, somebody from JB uh, uh, Peck's podcast. Um, uh, the Antifada. What, yeah, the Antifada. So I can't yeah. remember who from the Antifada went down to Mexico and met with the Zapatistas uh, and did something with them. I don't even remember. Nice. My apologies on that, but uh, well, there's a there's also someone named, uh, and this is the song that I was playing that Phil Ox wrote um, that I that I sent you, uh, "Bullets of Mexico." Um, mm. Ruben uh, Germayo, I think, um, is, is how you pronounce it. But uh, he was a, he was a Zapatista, um, a young Zapatista, and he ended up kind of uh, demanding the same kind of land. Probably Hermayo. Right? <laughs> he ended up, uh, yeah, Hermayo. Her um, Hermayo. He, Come on. <laughs> he, ended up, uh, he ended up getting shot on the land kind of by the, um, the Campanistas. But like he kind of did a similar thing where he kind of went into rebellion because throughout, you know, throughout Mexican history, different places have gone into rebellion and, and people have either been gunned down or the, you know, the revolution continued depending on when and where and why and, you know, how much uh, support they could really get. But so the last thing I wanted to talk about, though, is and I'll, I'll play this clip is um, Marlon Brando's, uh, you know, he, he, you know, pushed hard for Native American rights, which I think that really what this is the story of more than anything else is an indigenous rights story. And I don't think mm -hmm. it, it ends up being done justice by the script. I think John Steinbeck and Elia Kazan were making their own statement about political leaders and communism and all this stuff and democracy. And, you know, mm -hmm. it gets lost within that. But I do want to play. Um, yeah, and, and I don't want to keep you guys too much. And like a couple hours that. before that we started streaming, I found this the actual script of the movie. Yeah. So so like we never we never had a chance to actually read it. <laughs> but uh yeah, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer, but this is the last thing I kinda of want to talk about is uh you know Marlon Brando's push for um indigenous representation at the very least. Tell me then when way back in the fifties when you got interested in when you were interested in the Indians fishing rights before it was fashionable to be so. Uh, what triggered that? I read a book called um, Indians of the Americas. Uh, and uh, I, I, after reading the book, realized that I knew nothing about the American Indian and that everything that we are taught about the American Indian is wrong. Uh, it's inaccurate. And our school books are uh, hopelessly lacking, perhaps criminally lacking, in uh, revealing what our relationship was with the Indian. When we hear, as we've heard throughout all our lives, no matter how old we are, that we are a country that stands for freedom, for rightness, for justice, uh, for everyone, uh, it simply doesn't apply to those who are not white. Uh, it just simply doesn't apply. And we were the most rapacious, aggressive, destructive, torturing, monstrous people who swept from one coast to the other, murdering and causing mayhem among the Indians. There's one Indian in the... <laughs> But uh, that isn't revealed, because we don't like that image of ourselves. 
we, we don't like to see us. We like to see ourselves as perhaps John Wayne sees us. And uh, uh, that, and also what we've learned about the Indians has been largely taught to us by Hollywood and by motion pictures. They have educated us. So we naturally believe that when the Indians came, that the wagon circled and the Indians rolled, rode around and, and subjected themselves to uh, terrible uh, fire and died at a ratio of 65 to 1. Both barrels of a shotgun would always get two Indians. Uh, yeah, and uh, that wasn't the way it was at all. But anyway, uh, Indians have been tragically misrepresented in films and uh, in our history books, in our attitudes, in our uh, reporting. And um, so we must set about to re-educate ourselves. Who are you looking at? You. Oh, oh no, there's a message coming. But, oh, okay. No, like, huh? I, one thing I wanted to get into on that, too, was the subject of not only how the Indians treated on the screen, but off the screen. I know oh, a guy who was say, in it. Let me tell you another thing. At a time when, when we say, especially, that we are going to keep our treaties and that we do keep our word and that uh, we above all people do keep our word. Uh, it, I think it's important to mention that there have been nearly 400 treaties written by the United States in good faith with the Indians and every single one of them was abrogated. It means broken or changed or altered. No, yeah, no exception. And the Indians howl when, with laughter, I guess, when they hear a public figure like a president uh, saying other nations will laugh at us if we don't honor our treaty commitments. Oh, yeah. uh, when they can think of 400 and, I don't know what the exact figure is, 31 examples of how we haven't in the past, and this would only be the 432nd case of it if we didn't. But, uh... So, Karthik, was that you clapping in the audience? Oh, no. <laughs> the lone Indian on the panel? Not the, yeah, not that I... <laughs> yeah, yeah the, this, so this whole kind of... Uh, I, I watched a lot of this interview and it's kind of pretty awkward because I don't think Marlon Brando really gave that many interviews. I mean, uh, on, on these big platforms. So Dick Cavett no, kind of, I, I think like, he was kind of smart. Cause he always brought up like the people who should be speaking about it. Yeah. Be like, Hey, listen to this person. Uh, cause that's kind of what he did for his Academy Award. If I remember correctly. Yeah. And, and I have that, I have that, uh, clip cause I wanted to talk about that. So this is, this is the, Academy Award moment. And this is the last topic before I go to final thoughts that I want to talk about. But um, yeah, this is this is the uh, the big Oscar moment that is the actually the most controversial Oscar moment and not anybody getting slapped. <laughs> I learned a great deal from a director named Ingmar Bergman. Often to be most eloquent is to be silent. You're quite right. Uh, the film we've just seen has said it all. I think we should uh, say that those nominated for the best performance by an actor are... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Michael Caine in Sleuth. Laurence Olivier in Sleuth. Peter O'Toole in The Ruling Class. Paul Winfield in Sounder. The winner is... Marlon Brando, The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Miss Justine Littlefeather. 
Hello. My name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. John Wayne can be heard booing in the background. No, John Wayne had to be held back for beating the fuck out of her. And that's yeah. By he had six like, people like holding him back, like, and and if you like, and Will Smith that, is the most uh, most controversial thing. Yeah, but if if you listen to her speech, she's talking about I hope we can meet with love, and it's like you know, it's really yeah. it's a beautiful speech, and like it, it's always really kind of pissed me the fuck off that like How people are actually you know what I mean it. like yeah. I, so that's kind of a moment that I've always wanted to play. Like Michael Moore had a similar but... moment too, whenever he got up there and, and, and challenged George Bush, uh, yep. you know, yeah. in, in 2004 or. Mm, but I mean, you know, Michael Morgan kind of can, can take, can take it, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, no, this that's, white, that's, this is like a, he a small, wants, he wants like to a be small Native American woman that kind of is up there speaking. Not used to her. be like in the public eye like that. Yeah. Millions of people watching her. But um, I've so I've never I've never seen this till today. But this is uh, and and then and then I'll go to final thoughts. Um, but this is Marlon Brando talking about why he did that, and I kind of thought it was um, he's still kind of talking about a, a lot of issues that we talk about today within this clip. So I thought this was interesting. I, I don't think so. No, I felt that um, that there was an opportunity for. Since the American Indian hasn't been able to hear his voice heard or have his voice heard anywhere in the history of the United States, uh, I felt that it was a marvelous opportunity for an Indian to be able to voice his opinion to 85 million people. I guess that was the number. and. Uh, I felt that he had a right to, in view of what Hollywood has done to him. And uh, I was embarrassed for Shashin. She wasn't able to say what she intended to say. And uh, I was distressed that people should have booed and whistled and stomped, even though perhaps it was directed uh, at myself. They should have at least had the courtesy to listen to her, but uh, I think she did very well, and I was uh, I was I was very glad that she did have what opportunity she she had to to say what she did, 
and uh, uh, why I, didn't you get to read your entire entire statement as you planned it? Well, I think that they felt that it was inappropriate, and um, I, I actually don't know. I I think they just they didn't want her there. They didn't want the uh, evening interrupted with that particular note. And from their insular point of view, I felt that perhaps they they had a point. But uh, I don't think that people uh, generally realize what the motion picture industry has done to the American Indian. As a matter of fact, all ethnic groups, uh, all minorities, all non-whites, and uh, people just simply don't realize, they just took it for granted that that's the way the people are going to be presented and these cliches were just going to be perpetuated. And uh, so when someone makes a protest of some kind and says, no, we do, please don't present the Chinese this way, or please, I mean, on this network every night, well, perhaps not every night, but you can see, silly renditions of human behavior, uh, the uh, leering Filipino houseboy, uh, the wily Japanese, or the, the kook or the gook, and uh, the idiot black man, and the stupid Indian. And it just goes on and on and on. And people actually don't realize how deeply uh, these people are injured by seeing themselves represented, not so much the adults, because they're already inured to that kind of pain and pressure, but uh, children, Indian children, seeing Indians represented as savage, as ugly, as nasty, vicious, treacherous, uh, drunken, uh, they grow up only with a negative in image of themselves, and it's, it, it lasts a lifetime. Is that an answer to your question? Yeah. Do you notice how much like he talks like uh, uh, Oliver Stone? I mean, like I don't know if Oliver Stone yeah. is like consciously trying to imitate him in the the way that he speaks. It's almost like the expressions every time he furrows his bro a little bit, uh, bro a little bit, and then he says like, thinks for a second and then. Yeah, I, I could see it. I, don't, I mean, I, that's not the first thing that popped into my head. I didn't know that that's what Marlon Brando actually like spoke like though. I, you know, cause he, he kind of does the. Really? You didn't know that's how he sounded? I, I mean, just like his, cause I, well, I mean, I've seen him in, you know, Streetcar Named Desire. I've seen him in Godfather. Yeah. You know? Which I think this movie was kind of a uh, uh, a streetcar named uh, Deseo. I think was the no, well, yeah, streetcar named Zapata. Or I, I looked it up. I looked up the desire desire in Spanish, and it's streetcar named Deseo. But um, <laughs> I felt like his. I feel like this is Stanley Kolowski or whatever. Like I felt like this is him as like a, a, a revolutionary Mexican general. Like that's what this movie was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but and he totally did like a proto version of the Godfather voice. Yeah, no, he did. I, but like, I don't know. I just kind of found this this movie specifically fascinating. But uh, you know, uh, I also I, like how how like they used less and less bronzer as the movie went on. 
ஒன்னும்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்ல்லாம்
or this last week, he he held an election, won it in the landslide. His kind of uh, his opponents kind of sat it out, but he also is an incredibly popular Mexican president and is the first person. Um, the Mexican Revolution ended, and they started PRI as like a, a you know a party, which uh, Amlo was the first non-PRI president to win um, election in Mexico, which is kind of fascinating. Does he? Uh, what's his uh, relationship with the legacy of Zap- Zapata and like the Zapatistas? Yeah, I was wondering that too. I, I haven't really. Hmm. It, it's it's um, he 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 comes across a lot more radical in his rhetoric than he actually is in his governing. But again, yeah. it's it's very complicated because the fact that you know he's he's right on our border. Uh, the U.S. Uh, you know has so much influence over Mexico. Has There's invaded always... Mexico before, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there is so much. Oh wow, Mexico's Amlo de Zapatistas. Let's put aside our differences. Hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's it's very yeah. Everything about Amlo is very complicated and and can't really be summed up easily. Um, but but uh, he definitely is of the left, and he does kind of govern neoliberally. But there's extenuating circumstances around that. Yeah, uh, no, well, and he's actually I mean, doing a lot of good. more so. than anything else is a is a is a populist, right? Like, yeah, this is the when he was running for president. Um, mm. and, and I think there's probably some people who could speak much better than me on on Amlo um, uh, about you know who who he is politically and whatnot. So. I, I mean, I, I think that I mean it's it's difficult because at the end of the Mexican Revolution, they put PRI kind of as the ruling party and. All of the presidents of, um, you know, all, all the presidents of Mexico since then have been of that party. Like it's been a one-party state. And Amlo tried running two times before that, um, and and got you know both times kind of lost. And I thought there was like two parties that weren't that different, and PRI was one of them. There, there might have been a yeah, and like every once in a while they just switch because, you know, um, the 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 particular one was so egregious that they, they couldn't deal with it anymore. Well, I, I know that, I know that AMLO uh, defeated PRI. Like that was the, the big yeah. thing. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. Would um, it be that like uh, his, uh, he's clearly like, he's a president and it's like, it's pro- probably uh, more of a federal uh, centralized sort of control over uh, the Zapatistas seem to be more like decentralized in their in their understanding of power and uh, conception of power and all of that. Like, is that is that like a point of difference? You think is that this guy wants to be more of like a president at the federal level, like have more executive power? Whereas... That might have something to do with it. I, I don't I, honestly, I, mean, I, I, I legit don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the big thing at this point, because for a long time it was uh, federalism versus centralism right like those were the two ideologies like federalism as a thing that was uh kind of each state kind of governing itself mm-hmm. with a weak central authority and then centralism which is the thing that wins out within the right. revolution um as a, a strong executive state and um i i think that at this point though those differences are kind of put aside and it's more along the lines of uh kind of like more of a, a strictly neoliberal um uh you know, strictly neoliberal, like uh, incredibly corrupt uh, system of politics. And what AMLO was kind of promising wasn't to get away from the neoliberal side of it as much as it was kind of to be more of a populist, um, you know, non-corrupt leader. And that's why he does things like, you know, uh, reinforcing his his democratic win with, you know, this, this um, which would never have been a thing in the past, like, you know, running halfway through it and also 
um you know he did things like sold off you know mexico's presidential jets sold off like a bunch of their cars like you know what i mean like kind of showing that that the government is going to be more frugal in the sense of uh you know the way that they hold themselves rather than kind of as an aesthetic thing rather than um being uh frugal in the sense of austerity he's also like i feel like being uh, anti-imperialist in a more like solidarity with the global south kind of way i feel like he's kind of um, but then you also have the problem with the fact that mexico is a uh deports more immigrants than the united states yeah um, well because so- they start i mean they start there and wait to get into the united states well and, now but 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 for even before that like like during yeah. the obama administration that's whenever this actually started um th- through pressures of of the u.s government um you know actually like, like turning uh mexico into a a net deporter and because like it's really you know mexico and united states relations are really tough it's hard for somebody like amlo to actually legit govern the way he wants because you know we are the 900 uh, pound gorilla and we're on his border hmm. and uh and Porfirio diaz you know bringing this full circle before i go to final thoughts the last quote um he was the leader that actually said um poor mexico so far from god so close to the united states hmm. his, uh, <laughs> i love that quote by the way yeah. <laughs> it's always been, like one of my favorites i remember but, uh, first hearing that in uh, texas history back when uh, <laughs> uh back when i was going to school but uh Karthik, starting with you, final thoughts on this movie or the conversation that we just had or, you know, any part of it? Sure. Uh, I mean, like, I, I like Marlon Brando. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that's, I mean, of course, Last Tango in Paris, like, gives me a lot of uh, pause about, like, full, full-fledged appreciation for, for him as, like, an individual. But I think, like, he's still... He was great in Dune. And, and I think he's, like, a, just probably the greatest actor ever to have come out of Hollywood, probably. And uh, I think that, like, in this movie, he he does, like, he shines. Like, I don't think there was any, like, the, he, despite the brown face, despite the, you know, the phony accent uh, every now and then, uh, it just seems like he has the charisma. I, don't, I can't think of anybody else who could have played this character, um, except for maybe, like, somebody of, of that heritage, which I think they could have tried, like, maybe now they would. Uh, but well, Ricardo Montalban was working in Hollywood at the time, just saying. I mean, either way, I feel like Marlon Brando playing him could have got a lot more attention to the character than anybody else playing him in a way. So I can, like, I guess, excuse that. Um, the, what I what I had a harder time excusing is that it that it did feel like it was a precursor to. I, I I mean, like the the reading of On the Waterfront as an informant movie is like very revealing, and I feel like this movie was kind of setting up to be that because there is a character uh, I actually I mean after you called him Fredito I totally forgot his name um, but that character <laughs> who basically like Pablo Gonzalez like it was a very like boring name yeah and I feel like he was kind of like a, a semi informant character because he was like he had connections with the uh, with the with Madero I think and uh, he couldn't deal with that like he was like what well, your... goes up to him and he says uh, he was like he needs you he can't read he can't write right. he can't read which is not true Zapata could read and write like that is a <laughs> yeah and it's like it kind of you know it there were like lines that he gets he looks directly at Zapata's face and like Zapata's not even able to look at him and he's like saying you know how can you be the leader that you want to be uh while being a violent man or something like that and and it was just like it was a direct shot at like you know uh communism etc it's like you you know you are Arm yeah, struggle and, and whatnot. And the brother, the brother is written by uh, Steinbeck and Elia Kazan to be kind of a you know. We, I was reading the the 
thing before the script that was on uh you know they had kind of an intro to it and they had mm. written that oh this was meant to be someone kind of suffering from a communist mentality which like, right right and it's like it, it did feel like you know every now and then you you see this and it's almost like this is you kind of have to sneak this in to get the movie made in the first place and and that kind of begs the question of like you know why make a movie about a revolu- revolutionary figure if you're going to you know re- engage in revisionism or uh, steal the you know steal that thunder quite literally like make them uh, these tame sort of like almost you know cowardly figures but like at the end of the day i feel like um it is it it did feel uh, a little bit like I, I i was half-hearted about it i felt like it did have its revolutionary moments where like there were instances where he made the point pretty clearly like the gun the scene where he hands the gun and he says like now you're able to demand this from me uh, but you wouldn't be able to demand this from me if you didn't have the gun that kind of like really uh, gave a it was like a nice lesson on like self determination and everything but uh, i guess like at the end of the day it is hard to stomach it as somebody especially coming out the same year that this dude like when and ratted out on everybody um it you have to view this film from that lens and you know uh, um, it, from that standpoint like i guess like the only cool thing that i liked about it was probably the 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 scene with the uh, uh the the problematic scene uh, that introduces uh, Marlon Brando and uh, his love interest uh which kind of felt like you know the 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 only real relationship it felt like i don't know that was kind of like sweet in a in a kind of way in a twisted kind of way yeah i mean it kind of took the aesthetics of uh the mexican revolution it felt like a lot and and just turned it into like with the message that steinbeck wanted to give out and elia kazan wanted to give out but it kind of like just aestheticized certain parts of the like mexican revolution like the names They're like oh these are these are these characters there you go you can see the characters anyway here's what we wanted to say about leaders and communism and 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 it if it, the last thing i would add uh, it also felt like uh, it was a western with a different kind of hat uh yeah. and, and it was kind of like basically uh might I mean, have been similar, the pitch that they gave the but i get what you mean <laughs> yeah like it, i mean it was not a cowboy hat it was the it was the mexican it was a sombrero so yeah yeah <laughs> um christina got any final thoughts for us i'm i'm just really mad that my sister and my mom are right outside my bedroom talking so i had to have my mic muted most of this whole podcast uh this movie was okay i love marlon brando but you know, this is way before they could actually find actors to portray uh, people of their heritage properly. Um, brown face is very cringe. Uh, I do believe that, like what Karthik was saying, that this movie's, you know, and what you've been saying for us is how this movie's, you know, more like a, like describing like communism and like leaders and whatnot. Um, I do hope that one day there's a better like movie about this guy because I feel like his actual life reading up on him was a lot more fascinating than what is portrayed in the film. I've I've been completely fascinated listening to Revolutions, which you know is a is a is a nice condensed podcast. Like I like that podcast a lot, but you know, um, kind of just fascinated with uh, how political but also non-political a lot of the mexican revolution was and kind of how it was a revolution of people just kind of gunning each other down like a lot of times there was no real political difference to speak of um i mean the, there there were people who were you know saw themselves as democratic leaders versus people that saw themselves as military you know military dictators versus all of this other stuff but like it kind of in some ways um people of the exact same ideology or that didn't really have an idea of a different ideology would just gun each other down over personality differences and you realize that like 
I mean, you know, I mean, Mexico at this point was kind of a largely peasant society. Like it's, you know, and, and Zapata was kind of the leader of the peasantry, like the, the, at least in the South. And like, they had very concrete demands. They wanted the haciendas in their state, you know, like in, in their territory to give up the land and give the land back to the villages. And they wanted collectivized farming and they wanted kind of an agrarian socialist style, uh, like they had, you know, back in the day, they wanted to do subsistence farming. They didn't want to give their um, profits away to multinational corporations. They just wanted to live the way that they did. And in the end, they got to. And like, it's it's beautiful that they got to. But like, it's kind of a fascinating story that way, right? Like, it's not it's it's not someone with a grand vision where they're like, I want to rule Mexico this way. It's very much uh, 120 villages, pretty much, with Zapata saying, we want to go back to the way things were, you know, before the Perfuriata, where we could just kind of live the way that we want to. People weren't bothering us. They weren't extracting our profits. I think there were five haciendas at the end of the revolution that, that remained kind of as haciendas, but they, they got their land back and the plan of Ayala was fulfilled. And it's kind of beautiful that way. Um, Cause the plan of Ayala really just said, give us our land back. Like that was their, <laughs> that was their political platform. And it's kind of, you know, we, we think of, uh, socialism or communism as kind of um, a, a political ideology that kind of takes over an entire system. But this wasn't that. This was agrarian socialism. This was kind of back to communal farming. Nobody wanted to own anything. Part of the, the whole liberalization of Mexico was that um, one plot of land would be owned by one person. And that's not the way that, you know, uh, indigenous tribes lived. They didn't want that. You know, they, they wanted, like, the Mexican government at the time under liberals wanted um, people to think of things as their own property. They wanted private property rights. That's not the way that indigenous tribes lived. Indigenous tribes collectively owned uh, a large bit of land and farmed it together, and they wanted that community preserved, and they got that. Sorry, I stepped all over your final thoughts. I just kind of found that part of it beautiful. Look at you. About to get all teary-eyed. He's getting off a clumped. Talk too much yourselves. Have your final thoughts, Christina. <laughs> oh, well, I already had my, my final thoughts, so I'm good. I guess then it's my turn, so we can yeah. let us cry some more. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I got to say, this movie I thought was kind of boring. Um, the, it, it's it's two hours long. Um, it, it, it's... Uh, they're, they're like, like I, I remember like an hour into it. I'm like, oh man, this movie's flying. But, oh crap. I got another hour to go. You know? <laughs> uh, like, like it kept seeming like the movie was trying to end and then it didn't. Um, it, it just, it doesn't feel like um, as a film, it, it had like a good arc to it. Hmm. Um, last half hour felt like it took forever too. And... Oh my God. Yeah. It just kept getting worse and worse. And, and there was like less and less bronzer and, and like, you know, <laughs> You can tell this movie. Give me my land. <laughs> I want my land. You don't need a leader. You just need land. <laughs> but but yeah, it just um, yeah. The the movie really does like suffer from bad pacing. Um, uh, Marlon Brando is Marlon Brando. Um, Anthony Quinn is fantastic, like always. Like like just his performances go. Um, you know. Uh, uh, I guess Joan Peters is a thing for guys in bronzer because she's also an Apache with uh, um, uh, what's his name, who's also uh, who's not Indian at all and is playing brown face. <laughs> but anyways, um, that, that, that said, it's um, 
I really do wish we got a better film because like on paper, this looks like it's a, it's a fascinating film. And just as a side note, um, uh, I learned this week that, um, uh, that, 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 that um, James Bond there in that clip, um, he doesn't want to run on camera because he thinks he looks funny. And now I really want to see him run. Run, Biggie, run. <laughs> like, wait, wait which, which Bond was that? That was, um, that was Roger Moore. Yeah. So, ah. so if anybody knows where I can see Roger Moore run, uh, it's one of the Bond films because those, those are stunt doubles running for him. Hmm. <laughs> he was also like 60 years old when they, when they came out and stuff, right? Wasn't he the oldest Bond? Um, at the end, yes. Like, like in 1984 when, when they're... Uh, I was thinking the one where, where um, Christopher Walken plays Trump. Hello, make America great again. <laughs> yeah, and it has um, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, uh, Grace Jones is his henchman. But I'm gonna let you guys go, and and here's my last final thoughts. You've always looked for leaders, strong men without faults, but there aren't any. There are only men like yourselves. They change, they desert, they die. There are no leaders but yourselves, the strong people is the only lasting strength.